Hello, and welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast, designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the evidence that a brighter future is actually possible. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress and goodness well underway around the globe that almost no one knows about. This podcast will give you hope for the future and help you take control of your life online. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we have been restoring people's hope in the future by writing thousands of articles about insight and innovation going uncelebrated. And along the way, we've been having amazing conversations with thought leaders that we are now sharing with the world. Today, I'm going to have some super fun with a close friend and wise thought leader in the world, Dr. Stephen Shepard. Dr. Stephen Shepard was sort of captured by me after he spoke to an event I was at. I literally waited outside the meeting room, (laughs) and if I'd had a net, I would have thrown it over him. He has an amazing way of communicating that brings a smile brings those light bulb moments as as fast as you can possibly deliver them. And he has a message. Well, he has many, many messages, but he has a message that I'd like to talk to him about today that I'm particularly interested in helping us use to open a new era. So Dr. Shepard is the founder and owner of Shepard Communications. He's a global thought leader and well, well thought, thought after speaker. He is an author of so many books, I've lost count. A photographer, that's how I originally met you too. So anyway, you're doing so many things in the world. Steve, please introduce yourself with a lot more depth and scope than I just did. Well, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of depth and scope there, Linda, but I'll be glad to say a little bit more about what I do. (laughs) Um, my, My world lies squarely in the area where technology and people touch. So my interest is in how we take technology and make it more useful, more effective, more relevant for human society. So as a result of that, I spend a lot of my time uh, in the developing world working with organizations that have tried to sort of move things forward, if you will, to take better advantage of what's available to them and then as a result sort of improve their lot in life and the lot of the people that they work with. What that also means is that I have the opportunity to work with a lot of people from a lot of different areas, which is really where my interest in the whole generational theory thing came about, Uh, looking at the different generations and trying to understand what causes the changes as you go from generation to generation, what motivates some generations to do things in one way and other generations to do them in another, and of course, to try to uncover more about the whole cycle, and it is a cycle that exists as you move through the generations over time. It's a, it's a long-standing process. It's been going on since long before you and I were born. And the more I study it, the more interesting it becomes. So we should talk about it. Okay. So you have totally given us the keys to the kingdom here. People have heard you mention the word generations now uh, quite a few times there in that last few those last few paragraphs. And that's the, the kingdom I'd love for us to unlock today for people is how much missed potential 
is in this generational theory. The, these, this knowledge that yes, we are, we have baby boomers. Yes, we have Gen Xers and Gen Zers and millennials, and usually those categories are spoken about with disdain and contempt. But that is so unnecessary and so far missing the potential in what we could be doing working together. Steve, we're we're going to be doing something new at Ever Widening Circles. We're going to be launching the Conspiracy of Goodness Network soon. And I hope this becomes the nicest, well, I know it will be the nicest place on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be a place where like-minded people who want the world to be a better place can connect. And I tell you, across the board, it's going to be how we can harness the potential of all the generations of everybody. So start us out. You know, I know that, you, that you've got a million subjects we can talk about, but let's focus on the missed potential in this, in the four generational archetypes and give us a little science because this is not pop science, right? Or pop psychology. That's right. That's right. So let, let's, let's do a little definition first. So a generation is usually defined as a group of people who share a common place in history. So they, they are born and they grow up during roughly the same period of time. And according to most of the sociologists out there, a generation is born for about 20 years or so. And then the next generation starts to kick in. And, you know, there isn't a hard line between them. There, there's some overlap. There always is. No one is purely one generation. You can, you know, you can easily find characteristics of all the generations in a person, but there's usually one dominant behavioral modality that's dictated by the time at which they grew up. We often say that generations create history, but truthfully, history creates generations. And they're kind of, you know, to steal a word from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they're very much intertwingled, right? I mean, they're, they're, you can't have one without the other. You mentioned, Linda, that there are four generational archetypes, and in fact, there are. And I'm going to just use sort of the most, the four most recent generations uh, that are on record to define what they are. And I'll just list them briefly. And then if you'd like me after that to go into a little more of a description of what they are, I'll do that. So I'm going to start with my parents' generation, which is called the silent generation. And that's a group of people that were born roughly 1925 to 1945. And just be just be aware, there's a little bit of um, sloppiness, if you will, in those dates plus or minus, let's say, three to five years. So there's always a certain amount of overlap. And in fact, let me interrupt myself right here and make note of something that I find really interesting. And from a workplace point of view, this is very important. People that tend to be born at that cusp of change from one generation to another. So at that three to five year interface period, which you go from one generation ending to another one starting, those people are called cuspers because they're born on the cusp of change between two generations. What makes cuspers really interesting is that a very high percentage of them become very effective and very efficient leaders and managers because they have this interesting sort of characteristic where they have a foot firmly planted in both of the generations that they straddle, and they have the ability to see the world in two different ways. And that's very important. In fact, if you do a, a little sort of back-of-the-envelope study, you'll find that a very large percentage of the people that we revere as good leaders are cuspers. They're born at some cusp of change. 
So we start with the silent generation. And then the next generation after the silent generation is the baby boomers, my generation. And those are people that are born roughly 1946 to 1964 or thereabouts. And they're a very large generation of of people. I I think the last number I saw said that there were about 46 million of them in the workplace at any point in time. And then as we go from the boomers to the next generation, which is the Generation X, as they're called, the X generation, um, that's a group of people that were born roughly 1965 to 81. Then they were a relatively small generation for some very interesting reasons that we'll talk about, 46 million, so a little more than half of what the boomers were. And then finally, we move into the millennials, which, of course, are the the up-and-comers, if you will. The oldest of them are sort of in mid-career right now. And they are born roughly 1982 to 2004, which means they're done. And they've been done for quite a long time, what, 17 years or so. And they're an important generation, if for no other reason than the fact that they are the single largest generation that has ever lived on this planet. They're very big. And that gives them a great deal of influence. And then we wrap and we start over again. And the next generation, which is, in fact, my grandchildren, they are a generation that have come to be known as the plurals. And if you think about the cycle, if you remember, we if you think about starting up at 12 o'clock on the clock face, that was the silent generation. And then we went around to roughly three o'clock, which was the baby boomers. And then six o'clock was the Xers. And then nine o'clock would be the millennials. And now we're back to 12 o'clock again. The plurals are a repeat in many, many ways of my parents' generation, the silent generation. That is the important point here, that the cycle is finite. It has four stages, four clearly recognizable stages, and each stage is radically different from the group that came before them and the group that follows them. Okay. So I'm taking notes as fast as I can, and that reminds me to tell people that there'll be some great show notes on this episode. So just enjoy kind of following the thought process that Steve is introducing us to. Now, Steve, before we run on too much, I mentioned that this is not like pop psychology. These are patterns of behaviors that are just calculated in the numbers, in actual data, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, there are people far smarter than I who have been studying this stuff much longer than I have. But, you know, in in my graduate work, looking at generations and how they engage with technology in different societies around the world, I was looking for patterns. And Part of having to do that was to track those patterns, those identifiable patterns, as far back in human history as I possibly could. I personally tracked the cycles back to the middle of the 11th century. And at that point, I just got bored and stopped. But I could have continued onward as long as I wanted. There is a lot of great work done by people like Bill Strauss and Neil Howe, who were the first people to actually look at generations. In fact, their their seminal book, uh, Generations, easy to remember, was probably the first book on the subject. They wrote many, many others after that, including a book that became sort of the rallying cry for people that were studying generations, especially the millennials. And that book was called The Fourth Turning. There are many other people, including a colleague of mine, Morley Winograd, who has been studying generations and looking at their impact on political change and societal change and sociological change with extreme accuracy. And so when you look at this, 
you know, it's easy to look at it and say, this is just pop psychology, but it really isn't because what we're looking at is what is often referred to as the law of large numbers or cohort theory. Hmm. The idea that if you get a large enough population of people, you can start to discern patterns in the data that are more that they're, they're more than statistically relevant. They're real. They're not just coincidences yeah. and, and looking at the ones that support our argument. These are these are supported by the numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right there is one of the things I I really am perplexed about this is that it is demonstrable. It is very consequential, both in our business lives and our personal lives. And yet we're not drawing any great wisdom or leadership from from it. I don't hear other people talking about it. I ask thought leaders all the time because it comes up so often in my conversations or examples about ways to apply it. And nobody knows about this. Okay, so let's dive in and give us the short course. Now, you know, people get their feelings hurt about broad brush generalizations. So, you know, just keep in mind that this is taken from big data and the decisions that large numbers of people make. And yes, you personally may be completely different and an outsider to what Steve's going through, but but think about your coworkers. Think about your Thanksgiving table. I tell you, I've never been able to sit at my large Thanksgiving table with all the ups and downs going on in my family and so forth without thinking about the four generations and and then how to navigate that table and those and those business meetings for that matter much better. So take it from the top. Tell us some of the, the great strengths and the challenges from each of the four archetypes. Okay, I'll be glad to. So let me, let me preface that, Linda, by saying, and, and maybe we'll talk about this later, I don't know, but you know, there have been since time immemorial all of these indicators and tests and quizzes and things you can do to study personality, to study human behavior, that kind of thing. Earlier, when before we started, we were talking about the DISC test. There's Myers-Briggs. There's the strong aptitude test. There's, you know, the, what is your color? I mean, all those different elements that are part of, of this stuff. They're all indicative of things. We don't have those exams or quizzes or tests because they randomly work. We have them because they give us some indication of behaviors that tend to be collective and and we can infer things from that collective insight. And and this is the same thing, except now we're talking about entire generations of people on a global basis, a very large data set of information. So with that in mind, yeah, you can always find exceptions to every rule. And, and, you know, I know plenty of people that are millennials that don't behave like millennials. I get that. I know many baby boomers that ought to be behaving like typical silverback baby boomers, and they behave like millennials. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting but true and relatable fact. So let's look at what we know about each of these four generations. We'll start with the silent generation again. So this is my parents' generation. Grew up and your grandkids. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I yeah. want us to remember that it's your your parents' generation and your grandkids' generation. Absolutely. You know, there's that old joke about why do parents and grand why do 
why do children and grandparents get along because they have a common enemy? Well, now you know. Now we know, now we know it to be true. Right? <laughs> well, that is so true. Really yes. Yeah. So we're going to learn. Yeah. You know, a lot of us are concerned that 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 the plurals are not stepping up. They're the first digital natives. I'm sure you're going to share why how that's going to turn out to be a good thing that they were they have a lot in common with the silent generation. Okay. So that's it. I just wanted to clarify that we weren't leaving a big gen out because there's a lot fewer of our parents generation of people and there are of course the the furls. so carry on let's absolutely. go absolutely and i'll and i'll wrap it with that we'll do all of them okay. and and I'll, and I'll give you a little teaser here first you already know this linda but for our audience listen very carefully folks the millennials who we all know today and the plurals who are the generation that follow them are perhaps the two most important generations you will ever encounter in your life and it's not because they're big that that helps it's because of the way they look at the world so when i get to that i'll explain why that is so let's talk about the silence for a minute my parents they grew up as children during the great depression they didn't work during the depression but they saw the impact it had on their parents and they were shaped by that you know, their their parents' typical mantra was sort of the, the, you know, do hard work and you'll get ahead. That was the cultural moray of the time. And they were also taught that, you know, what's important here is to take care of your family, to be as selfless as possible, to do everything you can to move things forward, which means they became very good at compromise. They became very good at compromising to achieve a goal you know, healing the wounds as much as possible to get everybody to work together so we can move along. This is a generation that, of course, went to war. They went to World War II. They went to Korea. When they came back from World War II, the Depression had ended. Things were strong. You know, the the industrial side of the world was really growing because of, first of all, war production. But then in the post-war world, we saw this boom in manufacturing. And they all went to work for these huge companies, whether it was the gas company, the oil company, they went to work for the phone company, the power company. And the one thing they did was they became a tiny little piece of a very large machine. And what I mean by that is that if you think about the world that they grew up in and and worked through throughout their entire careers, they forged a sort of a social pact with the companies they worked for. And it read something like this. As your employer, I will give you a job for the rest of your life. I'm going to give you four weeks of vacation. I'm going to pay you a good salary. I'm going to cover 100% of your health care needs, whatever those may be. I am going to give you a savings plan that I will match for dollar for dollar. I will give you a pension. And the only thing I ask in return is that I want to own your soul, meaning you're going to work for me for the rest of your life. And in exchange for that, I'm going to give you all these good things. And of course, Having seen what their parents went through, standing in bread lines and dealing with unemployment and the angst of the Depression, this was manna from heaven. So they they did. They, they went in huge numbers. And they often operated under the assumption that said, it's not ideal, but I have a job for the rest of my life. So shut up, suck it up, and deal with it. The silent generation. Don't complain. You've got a job. You have nothing to complain about. Well, when they had children... They had them in very large numbers. They came back from war. And, of course, what do you do when you come back from war? Well, you have kids. And they did. And those kids became a very large generation known as the baby boomers. They are a boom generation because there were so many of them. And that generation 
grew up with a kind of an interesting sort of mantra. You know, their parents told them that the way to get through life and do well is to put your nose down, do the work, work really hard, never complain. You're lucky to have a job. And of course, that generation said, first of all, you're old and therefore you have no relevance. So I'm not going to listen to you. And second thing that happened was they grew up at a time of great social change. We're talking about the kids of the 60s here. So they saw Kent State. They saw the riots in Berkeley. They saw the Chicago Convention. They saw the riots. I mean, you know, all that stuff shaped them. They also saw the arrival of civil rights and women's rights and the self-help movement. And they came to the conclusion that they were the harbingers of great change in society. So why in the world should we be quiet? Look what we've done. Well, I'm talking about my own generation, of course. And I'm going to poke a little finger at myself and say, look in a mirror because you didn't do it. Your parents did it. The silent generation is the generation that actually kicked off the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. It wasn't the boomers. They just happened to be around when it came to fruition, when it really became sort of a public happening. So they took credit for it, which is very characteristic of boomers, by the way. Boomers are very are very self-centered. They're unlike their parents. They're not selfless. They define themselves by their work. Work is not something you do. It's something you are. If you think you're talking to a baby boomer, but you're not really sure and you want to prove it and you don't have your, you know, your Peterson generational field guide series with you, you go up to the person and introduce yourself as they're shaking your hand. The first thing they will say to you is, what do you do? Because their measure of a person is not whether they have a family or children or a dog or a hobby or they've been on vacation. They want to know what you do. That is their measure. That is how they validate you. And that's a clear indicator right there of what's going on. Other generations don't do that. It may come up later in the conversation, but it's not the thing that we start the conversation with. Okay? So boomers then give us the next generation of people. And one of the things we know about boomers is that apparently they didn't like children very much because they didn't have very many of them. They had relatively smaller numbers. Now, I'm kidding a little bit here because coincident with the maturation and arrival of the baby boomers was also the arrival of a social change that said a woman has the right to choose whether she has children, gets pregnant. We saw the arrival of birth control. We saw more women in the workplace, which meant that the birth rate dropped down a little bit. And as a consequence of that, the number of children that boomers had went down. So we went from roughly 74 million boomers in the workplace to 46 million Gen Xers, which is a pretty small generation. And this is a generation, Gen X, that kind of grew up in the shadow of their larger-than-life baby boomer parents, or at least that's the way they saw themselves. They were a generation where, where, to a very large extent, both of their parents worked, some of that a consequence of the economy, some of it because work is who you are. And as a result, Gen X kind of raised itself. They grew up as a very independent, self-reliant, entrepreneurial, capable generation that really didn't need anybody else around them. And if you'd like a, a, a kind of a nice view of that, people love to look at Silicon Valley and say, ah, millennials, look at it, Facebook, Twitter. No, 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 no. Silicon Valley was started by Gen X. You know, people people like Steve Jobs, these were the original people, you know, the, the Oracle founders, the people that started Silicon Valley were, in fact, Generation X. They were not 
They were not millennials. Well, Gen X is just kind of a normal generation of people. And I, and I say that with all the love in my heart, because one of the things they did was they pulled back from the boomers this belief that if work is how you define yourself, then you better work 24 hours a day, because that's obviously going to make you look more important. They're the ones that kind of pulled us back from the brink and said, no, you don't understand. I have a family and I love them and I plan to spend time with them. So this idea that you have that I'm going to carry two cell phones and a pager so you can reach me at all hours of the day and night is not going to happen, which is usually when the baby boomers heads start to explode because they can't conceive of someone who actually wants balance in their life. So Generation X, this relatively small generation, now goes on to start having children And the next generation in the cycle is the millennials. And the millennials, as I said earlier, they're the largest generation that's ever lived, well north of 90 million people. They dwarf the baby boomers. Now, you may wonder if this tiny little generation called Gen X had this gigantic generation of millennials. I mean, did they do anything else? Well, the answer is kind of a trick answer, and that is that that Gen X had a lot of kids But we saw what is often called an echo boom, and that is that when a prior generation, in this case, the boomers, the young end of the boomers, so the last boomers in the cycle, decided to start having children. And so the millennials are actually the children of two generations. They're the the children of the Xers, and they're the children of the late stage baby boomers. And that's why they're so big. Now, what do we know about them? They're an interesting group of people. They're extremely group-oriented. They're very much about making a difference. And, and I don't mean that as a kind of what I call a slogan leadership kind of approach, meaning it's words that sound good, but we're not, we don't really mean it. They really mean it. And their actions sort of betray the way they believe. They believe in making a difference and being part of something bigger than yourself. They believe that as a group, we can have more influence than we do individually. They're very much into collaboration. It's not an accident that the early social media platforms arrived when they did because they facilitate collaboration among these kids, this generation. I say these kids. I mean, my daughter was born the very first year of the millennials and, you know, she's she's in mid-career. So they're not really kids anymore, but certainly younger than I by a significant margin. And they're, like I said, a very, very important generation because of scale and because of commitment. They are all about bringing about social change. That's their mantra. Well, they're done. They stopped being born in roughly 2004, and now the plurals have come into the game. And the plurals are the next generation. And as I said earlier, the plurals are a repeat because we've now gone full cycle. They are a repeat of the silent generation. And they're very similar in their, in their behaviors, in their, their outlook. They are all about compromise. They're all about healing wounds, and I find that today especially to be very, very important for obvious reasons. But here's the other thing that I want to pause and take note of. If the plurals are a repeat of the silent generation, then if you think about the cycle, it probably makes sense that the millennials must be a repeat of whoever came before my parents' generation, which is the last plurals, if you will, right? And in fact, they are. And this is where, Linda, your point about understanding the generations and what they contribute is very, very important because people tend to look at the millennials and call them 
you know, these sort of self-important snowflakes that have really nothing to contribute and they complain about having to work hard and so on. None of that could be further from the truth. Because in point of fact, the millennials are a repeat in every way you can imagine of the generation that came to be known as the greatest generation, the hero generation. Oh, I just got... My grandparents. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Well, I mean, and, and you should, right? Isn't that important? I mean, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. This is the this is the generation that fought the First World War that made no sense at all. The first real compound tragedy in our ability to wage war on each other in very large scale, mercilessly. Absolutely. These these people marched off in with some courage, and they thought fast in incredibly daunting situations that needed ingenious goodwill of a large group that cared about, that cared about the greater good. That's exactly right. And so, you know, I have to bite my tongue quite often when I work with, uh, when I work with my corporate clients, because many of them are not aware of this stuff and they're very quick to condemn the millennials and or, or, you know, younger employees in general. And some of that is because they don't do things the way you do. Therefore, they must be wrong, which, of course, is ridiculous. And and they also know that they're coming in as change agents, as every generation does. And that's uncomfortable. Nobody likes change. Change is hard. Change is also necessary. And as a consequence of that, these companies are going through some pretty wrenching sociological reinvention in a lot of ways. And they're finding themselves in places where they have to kind of stop and think about what the future looks like and why it needs to look that way and how it is these kids, these younger employees that are actually going to drive the kind of change that we're looking for. I see it all the time. A lot of these companies I work with have embraced it. They've come to understand that you can't You simply can't paint everybody with the same brush because, yes, they're all humans. Yes, they're all living in the same area. Yes, they all work for the same company. But if you think they approach problems the same way you do, boy, do you have another thing coming. And that's critical. And and I'll give you a great example of this. I had a group of millennials working for one of the clients that I work with who were managed by a baby boomer. And I will call this person to be kind a silverback baby boomer, you know, you know, been around a while, as they say in West Texas. And like most boomers, he had this need to be in control, to be in charge. You know, it's the Alexander Haig thing, right? I'm in charge from from Vietnam. And what happened was really interesting. He was trying to tell these people how to do their jobs. And of course, the message, really, the subliminal or not so subliminal message was, I've been working since before you were born. I, therefore, am far better at this than you will ever be. So shut up and listen to what I tell you and do it. Their response to him, which I almost applauded applauded at out loud, was, you know, with all due respect and with all the love in our hearts, as long as we do it morally, correctly, legally, on time and on or under budget, why do you care how we do it? And of course, again, you could see the flames starting to come out of this person's hair because he simply couldn't abide the idea that these young people might actually have something to contribute. But they did. And to his credit, they he gave them enough rope to hang themselves with, and they ended up building a bridge. I mean, they 
they reinvented the process completely and ended up cutting the cost of doing what they were working on by more than 80%. It was extraordinary. Okay. Okay. So I have to tell you how, how I kind of use this exact story that you, you've shared that story with me and I've never been the same since as a leader. And then we're going to cut to a quick break, but you know, my daughter, Liesl, who I, I'm one of those in the, I'm a young boomer who had, who waited so long to have kids that I have millennial kids. So I'm in that group that helped contribute the big numbers to the millennials. So my millennial daughter, Liesl, is the CEO of Everwinding Circles, and I'm the founder. And she makes all the decisions now. And I recently gave her those reins. And here's what I told her. So I have gotten to, had to be okay with the fact that she and the wonderful team she leads, I imagine a giant globe rolling, the earth turning towards me very slowly. And their little silhouettes are lined up on the edge of the horizon and they can look over into what's coming towards us. But me, I'm way back out at the 100,000 foot look, looking at their backs, but I can see that whole distance in my lived life between where I'm at and their backs but I can't see in front of them. It's just impossible for me. And they can't really see behind them either. So we need each other. So I'm always telling them that I'm okay with being wrong about 80% of the time because they can see what's coming at us. And they get real comfortable with letting me have the the reins on about 20% of the time when it's really important to have the perspective of many, many years of experience. And we've come to some kind of arrangement now where we never get our feelings hurt. We really lean on each other's strengths and lived experiences that way. So, so there's an old expression that says good decisions come from experience, but experience comes from a lot of bad decisions. And that's that, that important combination of wisdom and innovative thinking, and somewhere in the middle lies what drives us all forward. It's fascinating. And in the end, we have to trust each other, or we're each only able to see part of the picture, right? So let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the practical aspects of using these four generational archetypes to bring out the best in each other, because there's some tricks to this. And we can live better lives in our families and in our working life if we start looking sideways and saying, hey, this is a place where he will shine and this is the place where she will shine. Okay, so let's take a break and we'll be back in just a few seconds. Sounds good. I'm going to take a break from our chat to tell you about a fantastic company, Boone Supply. Boot Supply has a line of really high quality and responsibly sourced water bottles, kitchen reusables, grocery bags, and more. But here's the truly wonderful part. With Boot Supply, you can shop by cause. Just select the cause you want to support at the bottom of their homepage, whether it be emergency relief, animals in nature, equality and justice, or many, many more. And they will donate a whopping 40% of your purchase price to the cause you select. They've donated over, wait for it, $100 million to date. So you help the environment with eco-friendly products while also giving to important causes. Everwidening Circles is a Boone Supply affiliate, which means that when you purchase from Boone Supply by using the link in the show notes below, we get a small commission from your purchase, and that really means the world to us. And 
you're going to be supporting some fantastic causes at the same time. This is truly a win-win-win situation. And all you have to do is purchase from Boon Supply by using the link down below in his show notes. Thank you so much. Okay, we're back. Thank you so much, Steve, for helping us raise and expand our level of understanding of each other. So we've been through the four generational archetypes. I'm just looking at my notes here. And then we explained probably the most fundamental insight here is that they're repeating and that we have got our grandparents' generation in this generation that's the first digital natives. Let's start with how, you know, your expertise is also in global communication. So I'll bet you you have some interesting thoughts on what the strengths of this generation that are now in what? Up to high school? Where, where does, who, who's in this, the current generation? Are, am I mistaking or do some people call the plurals Gen Z? That's an interesting point. Some people call them Gen Z. Some people call the millennials Gen Y. And, you know, we could could argue forever about the relative names of each of these generations. I will tell you just anecdotally that millennials often don't like the term Gen Y because it kind of implies that they're an extension of Gen X. And, and they're not, obviously. They're very, very different. And the same is true of Gen Z. So, so the plurals, okay. at least in North America, seems to be the name that we've settled on. And I'll explain why that name okay. came about in a second. But let's remember, first of all, that the, the plurals are, or the digital natives, as you call them very, very accurately, uh, they are the generation that follows the millennials. And the oldest of them, depending on how you read the tea leaves, are 17 to 22 years old, somewhere in there. I mean, they're, that's kind of the old end of the spectrum. And they're called the digital natives because on a global scale, they are the first generation ever to grow up in a world where they've never known a world without the internet, without the World Wide Web, without mobile telephony. And for them, therefore, this digital technology, these digital connectivity and collaboration solutions are like air, you know, you don't live without them. This is what makes us able to do what we do. And so so that's where that name comes from. The plurals name. Now, remember, this is the repeat of the silent generation. So, so this is kind of important here. The word plurals came about because this particular generation is ushering in an era of a pluralistic society in, in the United States. And what that means is that Starting, again, depending on whose studies you read, but right around the end of 2018 or so, one of the things that is happening is that if you look at babies being born in the United States, starting around the end of 2018 or thereabouts, white babies are less than half of the population of the babies being born, which is an extraordinarily important thing. Because And that's what pluralism is. It means there is no single dominant race in the country, which means that there is no single dominant point of view. There's no single dominant direction. It means that we have this opportunity to collaborate and take advantage of the best that everybody has to offer. And that's just the way it is. Like it or not, that's the way it is. So let's take advantage of it. And here we are, a generation that on a large scale over the course of the next couple of years is going to be old enough to vote, old enough to make decisions, old enough to work in corporations and change the course of things with a global perspective that says 
we got to work together. Collaboration is the only thing that's going to help us solve these gigantic planet scale problems that we have. And, you know, who better than them? And by the way, think about this. The people that preceded them historically, the millennials, are a generation that is also highly collaborative, very much technology oriented. And they're all about taking on big challenges as a cohort and trying to address those challenges. So personally, when I sit back and look at them, to to go back to your um, description that you gave before the break about being on one side of the planet, looking at this these younger people that are up on the horizon, looking into the future, I can't think of a better pair of generations to lead us than these two. Are they young? Yeah, they're young. Do they have experience? Not as much as is necessary, but I look at some of the people making decisions around the world today that are older and I don't see great decisions necessarily coming out of them, right? I mean, with a few, with a few exceptions, right? So so yes. to me, I mean, this is important to me. This is exciting and it's important. And yes, it's disruptive and sometimes painful. But what an extraordinary opportunity we have. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, people uh, very often because of my work with ever-widening circles and having written a, <laughs> a book that seems to resonate with people called Happiness is an Option, people always assume that I'm an optimist. But really, I, I disavow them of that knowledge. I've had a lot of tragedy in my life. I've, I've lived all over the world and seen how tough the, the world, there's a lot of harshness in this world. But I know this, I know what you're sharing with us now is as, as important a predictor of the future as there could be. If we just know that on a large scale, we've got two generations taking the reins of business and industry and education, they're going to come on board. And yes, they're going to make mistakes just like we did, but they have these impulses for collaboration that have been sorely missing for at least the last 20 years no matter which side of the political equation you're on. That's right. And not only do they have that, Linda, they have a technological platform available to them now that, that gives them the ability to amplify their ability to be collaborative and to work together and to communicate in real time and, and so on. And yeah, I mean, you know, we could talk for days about the downside of social media and all that nonsense, but every technology has its detractors. But if you look at what technology is capable of doing on a positive side, I mean, this is amazing stuff. This is amazing stuff. Okay. So tell me some anecdotal stories that you know that, that help you sleep a little bit better at night when you think, oh, and then you know that we have these two generations coming up. Or give me some stories that you might know where, where people who were boomers or Gen Xers collaborated in a way that, that the best that everybody had came to the table. Okay, I'll give you I'll give you some some kind of humorous anecdotes that illustrate the points and then I'll give you some others that are less humorous but just as indicative. And I want to preface it with this comment. You remember the last time you got a tetanus shot? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Yeah, I, I I'm a welder. <laughs> Most people don't remember the last time. <laughs> I'm working with rusty metal every single Sunday, burning the hell out of myself and so forth. But okay. I'm one of the rare people that do. <laughs> okay. So, so you remember. All right. So whenever you get a tetanus shot, most people, the next day, your arm is really sore, right? And one of the things you come to realize is that apparently when you got your shot, they, without you realizing it, they tattooed on the back of your head a message that said, I just got a tetanus shot in my left arm. So come by and and punch me in the shoulder because everybody punches you in the shoulder. It's like, 
How did you know? Well, the answer is they didn't. They always punch you in the shoulder. But because you didn't have a tetanus shot, you didn't notice it. Well, this stuff, this generational wow. stuff is like an inoculation. We're going to inoculate you with wow. some knowledge that's going to help you better understand the workplace. And now when people punch you in the generational arm, you're going to go, ah, I know how I can use that. And that's how I want people thinking about this stuff. Okay. So this is huge. This is such a huge analogy, Steve. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That is a very terrific analogy. I just had the COVID-19 vaccine and somebody did punch me right in the arm the very next day. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) All right. So a couple of So I was with a group one time and and I may have shared some of these stories with you before, Linda, but I was with a group one time and and it was a group of people from all over the United States. And the room was arranged. It was a workshop I was leading and the room was arranged in a big U. And there was a gentleman sitting over on this side who, who told me that he and his wife live in San Diego in Southern California. Their son goes to school somewhere in Connecticut and He lives out there, obviously, but he comes home for all the major holidays. Well, he had come home for the holidays, and his parents have this sort of kind of quid pro quo relationship with him with regard to college. They pay for his school, and they give him a little bit of spending money so he doesn't have to work full time at school because they want him focused on his studies. But when he comes home, the quid pro quo is... They're going to provide him with a list of tasks that he must do while he's home. Not, it's not 100% of his time, but, you know, just to kind of show the value of the money that we're giving you. So he got home and the father said to him, while you're home, I need the trim around all the outside windows on the house painted. They live in a big house. It's got 14 big windows. And, and he said, yeah, no problem. Well, this is the Christmas holidays, okay? I mean, there are, you know, parties to go to and friends to visit with and stuff to do. And the days are going by and the painting has not been done. And the father occasionally reminds him of what must be done because if you don't paint the windows, there will be no money next quarter. Well, it's like two days before he's scheduled to fly home and the father kind of, you know, points at his watch and then waves his hand in the air like he had a paintbrush. And the kid says, yeah, 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 I know, I know. Well, the next day, which happened to be the day before the kid is due to leave to go back to his his home in Connecticut, early in the morning, the parents are awakened by a bunch of racket outside. So the father gets up, puts on a bathrobe, walks outside where he finds 14 kids, each one of them painting the trim on a window. The entire job took about eight minutes. And the father's response was, no, 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 no. I told you that I wanted you to paint the windows. And the kid said, no, you told me you wanted the windows painted. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I want that kid working for me. That's my kind of employee. Okay, if we do this together, the job goes from all day to eight minutes and we can have the rest of the day to go out and play. So I want to go back to my prior message from a few minutes ago about why do you care how I do it as long as I do it correctly? Why do you care if I innovate? Don't you want an innovative employee? Don't you want someone who figures out how to do it better? That's a classic example of the difference between the generations. The boomer wants to not only tell you what to do, but how to do it. Well, sorry, that's not productive. You're not being helpful there. And that's a great example of that, right? And and that's the kind of stuff that we see all the time. Another one that I love happened at one of the major telephone companies in the United States. And 
what happened was I had a fellow in one of my sessions and he is a, I don't remember what his title was, but it's something like executive vice president of engineering, meaning that he's a very highly placed executive in the company, one of the top five in the company. And by pure happenstance, his wife works for the phone company as well and had been with the company forever. And she happened to be the executive assistant to the CEO of the firm. So she, again, she's also a very highly placed executive. Well, this guy was in his office and (laughs) his phone rang and he looked at the caller ID and it was his wife calling from the CEO's office. And he answered and, and she said to him, sorry to interrupt you, but you know, do you have an employee named, you know, Bill Jones? And he said, yeah, he's a new employee. He just joined the company. He was a millennial, as it turned out. Just joined the company a few months ago. He's went through orientation. And, and why are you asking? And she said, because he's here in the CEO's office. <laughs> Sky, of course, now sees his whole career flaming down around him because this young you know, whippersnapper employee is in the CEO's office where he doesn't belong. And the husband said, what is he doing there? And she said, well, it was actually kind of interesting. He came in and introduced himself to me. And he said, I'm a new employee with the business. And I work in this work group. And I don't know what a CEO does. I really don't know. But I bet if I knew it might help me do my job better, would it be okay if I asked him? Well, the CEO happened to be standing in the doorway of his inner office going through the mail. And he went, yeah, come on in. And the husband, of course, said, well, what happened? And she said, I don't know. They just left for lunch. Well, at this point, the husband turns to me in this class and, you know, utters an expression that I'm not going to repeat because it's probably not appropriate for your podcast, but then follows it by saying, I've worked for this company for 30 years and I've never had lunch with the CEO. And I looked at him and I said, but I'll bet you never asked either, did you? You see, this is a generation that grew up playing games. They're not afraid to die. If they die, they just get another life and move on. And that's so important here. How refreshing it is that you feel you can just flounce into the CEO's office and say, hey, I work for you. Can I have five minutes of your time? I don't know. If I was a CEO, I'd welcome that. I want my employees talking to each other. (laughs) So. There you go. That's such a remarkable story. You know, it's funny, Adam Grant, who you probably know is a very a thought leader in business from the University of Pennsylvania School of Business. I'm not sure, but Adam Grant has an amazing TED Talk where he talks about the lessons from Super Mario that dive right. If you look at put uh, Super Mario in the, in the search box on ever-widening circles, and you're going to find an idea that just that uh, falls right into line with the example you just gave. And, you know, it is all about our fears, isn't it? So, Steve, let's let's focus on that for just a few minutes because we don't have very much time left. We're going to definitely have to do part two of this. But, you know, each generation probably has some fairly <laughs> preset, some fairly strong presets on what they fear as well that are completely limiting, Right. Absolutely right. And you know what's what's kind of interesting about this is that all generations, regardless of of who they are, the one thing they fear more than anything else is is pretty much down at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's the stuff that says, I want to be able to take care of myself, my family, I want to feed my family, I want to guarantee that my kids will be okay. Those are all the important things. 
what does that come from? Well, it, it, it's, it's, first of all, it's primal. I mean, those are the kind of concerns that people have. But the single most important fear that every generation has is, is unknown. They, they fear what they don't know is coming because people need to be able to prepare for the eventuality that something bad or good might, might happen. So the first and f- sort of foremost recommendation that every generation makes is just talk to me. Be open. Let me know what's going on. Help me understand what's going on in the business so I can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I will tell you, Linda, that one of the most heartening things I've seen is that when corporations finally embrace this idea that, A, every generation wants the same thing. You know what they want? They want to make enough money to have a good life. They want to have balance between their personal life and their work life. They want to feel challenged so that they grow as individuals. They want to feel like they're part of something bigger than just themselves. They want to be able to be kind of a contributing member of society. Every generation on the planet wants that, but they want it in different ways. Millennials want it collaboratively. They want the group rewarded. Boomers want to be put on a high pedestal with fireworks and symphonies and made an example of. I mean, it's just, but they all want the same thing. So when I look at companies that have embraced this idea that, A, everybody wants the same thing, albeit in different ways, and B, every generation is slightly different. So let's be aware, you know, it's the tetanus shop thing. Let's be aware of the differences here. Let's deliberately make a decision as an organization to pay attention and then give them a little bit of self-control to manage that way. Holy cow, the differences are extraordinary. When organizations do this and they say, we're going to put together a group, a task force, a team, whatever it may be, to attack a particular problem, and they do so in a way where they consciously and deliberately say, but let's make sure we've got gender balance and generational balance, the results are almost off the charts because everybody gets a voice. Everybody gets an opportunity to contribute. Everybody represents what they represent. And lo and behold, if they do it right, it turns out they all want the same thing. And look at all the ammunition they've just brought into the group to help them achieve that. It, it's, it's beyond words. That is such an important note to sit on and think about. Okay, so <laughs> I say this all the time, but I really mean it. We have to continue this conversation, Steve, because I think we're getting to this this moment where if people understand what we've talked about for the last 50 minutes, now what? How can we use it? How can we, you know, I'm hosting a big meeting for my dental practice. There's 12 of us. We're all across the board generations. We've got some diversity, which is unusual for dental practices in certain real areas. So we've got the diversity and covered a little bit. And yet we don't focus on the strengths that our generations each bring, right? This is something we're talking a lot about diversity, which with regard to race and, and, you know, all kinds of different kinds of diversity, but you don't hear it very often about generations. Not very often. So, okay. So we're going to come back to this conversation, pick up right where we left off soon. Uh, My producer, Brittany, is on the other end listening to this great piece. And I've been taking really detailed notes, so I'll know right when we pick up. All right. So, Steve, this has been great. Thanks for laying this foundation. It's exa- I feel inoculated even more to the, to the awareness <laughs> that we can do better. 
And just like my my COVID vaccine, I'm going to have to have a second dose. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that, Linda. And thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I think there's a lot to talk about. We'll make it happen. Okay. So now, where can people find you, connect with your work, ask you to do public speaking, find your books, all that stuff? Where, Where can people connect with you, Steve? Well, the, the books are available on Amazon. They're, they're all over the map. My website is probably the best site to go to. It's just, it's shepherdcom.com. That's S-H-E-P-A-R-D-C-O-M-M, two M's.com. All the books are listed there. There are white papers people can download. My contact information is also there. And, and Linda, as you know, I welcome people just dropping me an email if they're looking for information. And I'll be happy to send them white papers or whatever. Just, I mean, this is about sharing knowledge, sharing information. I mean, that's how we spread the word about these important messages that both you and I want to share. So by all means, have, you know, push people my direction. I'm happy to share whatever I have. And you've been doing some interviews of your own that people can find on LinkedIn, right? Absolutely. They can find them on LinkedIn. I do a lot of podcasting, a lot of video work. I write a lot. So, you know, as, as you've said earlier in the in the podcast, I write a lot of books. It's kind of a bad habit with me. I, I enjoy the process. So, you know, there's many different topics ranging from how to, how to record wildlife sound to very technical books about wireless and optical networking and everything in between. Oh, this is so great. Okay. I always end my interviews with one question. So, Steve, we, our byline for everwideningcircles.com is, it is still an amazing world. Can you tell me what makes you think that it is still an amazing world? One, something that you might come across daily that reminds you of that? Absolutely. And you remember earlier, Linda, when I used the word deliberate several times in the same sentence? Well, I've, that's become kind of my marching orders. You know, it's easy to blunder through life and just let it happen. And there's nothing wrong with that. Serendipity is my friend, you know. But the fact is that there is a lot, lot of good out there. There are a lot of good people. There are a lot of good things going on. There's some great companies. There's there's just good stuff. But oftentimes, the signal-to-noise ratio is wrong. There's too much noise and not enough signal. And you kind of have to go out of your way to find the signal. I make it my mission to seek out people that are doing really interesting things in really interesting ways, in really interesting places, and give them an opportunity to tell me a story. In fact, I cannot tell you how many times, in fact, it's right here in front of me on my monitor to remind me, I will often run into a stranger, a person I've never met, and what I say to them is, hi, I'm Steve, tell me a story, and just see where they go with it. It is extraordinary what you learn about yourself and about other people and about the goodness that is indeed in this world. And if you just make a little bit of a deliberate effort to kind of rise above the noise, it's amazing what you can see on that horizon you were referring to earlier. Oh, that's such a lovely way to to think about this going forward. Okay. Well, for more information about Steve's work and any of the things he and I mentioned, check out the show notes. We have a fantastic organization that helps us produce this podcast, and you'll find a lot down there. And special thanks this week to our affiliate connections that you heard about about in the middle of the show. And as always, dive into the ever-widening circles universe by visiting us at ewc.co. That's much easier than typing in everwideningcircles.com, but you can get there either way. And if there's students in your life, turn them loose on the Ever Widening Circles Ed website. 
Their kids are connecting wonder and learning in remarkable ways. That's ewced.com. And always, always, always think about subscribing for the Ever Widening Circles app. That is the number one thing you can do to help our efforts to open a new era. For less than a dollar a month, you will have the antidote to the daily news right in the palm of your hand. And one dollar will help us send a signal to content creators around the world that people will support positive content. You can connect with thousands of articles we've written about thought leaders in the world and the amazing things going on. And I hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry you through your week and you start finding all that joy and wonder that Steve and I have been talking about. Thank you so, so much. Have a great week.